came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 16th of April. 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. In this episode, we are zooming down to Melbourne, Australia, to find out about gravitational wave research from an amazing Osgrav astrophysicist. Enjoy. Hello, Shanika. Hi, Brendan. How's it going? Fantastic. Thank you. Now, Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Monash University PhD candidate and Osgrave researcher, Shanika Gala-Udike. Now, she's working on gravitational wave astrophysics. Thanks for speaking with us, Shanika. And thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Okay. Now, before we talk about your fabulous gravitational wave PhD research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Shanika, and Tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. So that's a fantastic place to start. I've lived in Melbourne my entire life, so I don't really know much about other cities, but I've been told by many people who have travelled a lot that Melbourne is a pretty great city. And given that I guess it was considered the most livable city for a number of years, I I think they're right. (laughs) And I feel quite lucky to have gone to school here and so forth. So my interest in science and space, I'm not quite sure what sparked it, if there was a singular thing that sparked it, but I do know that I was quite fascinated by planets in our solar system while I was in primary school. So one of my earliest memories was going to my local library to borrow books on the planets in the solar system. And I remember trying to take the books about all the planets plus the sun home. But when I took these books to the front desk, I remember the librarian telling me that I couldn't take all of these books home. (laughs) I could only take four in a series, (laughs) which at the time was a little bit devastating. But my dad assured me that we would come back next week to get the remaining books. And I had gotten through those books within a week. I just loved reading the facts about you know, Mars, why it was red and Venus, how it was the hottest planet, even though it wasn't the closest to the sun. 
So I really enjoyed just reading about space outside of school, but in school, I definitely tried to make any projects space-related if I could. So if there were any projects that they kind of said, it's up to you which question you ask and so forth, I would definitely try to make it space-related. And there's this one project that I remember so well, because it was a bit hilarious at the time, that we had to make a poster on something that we enjoyed learning about, and I did the solar system. And I made this giant oval poster so I could draw the solar system onto it. And I had all these different flaps on it that you could open up to read the facts about these different planets. And what was hilarious was that when the teacher tried to hang it up on some fishing line that was strung across the classroom, this poster wasn't held up very well. It was so heavy that it was drooping everyone's posters down. So the teacher had to string up multiple lines of fishing line to keep it up. So, yes, I'm not sure exactly what sparked my interest, but I do know that I was interested in space and science in general during my primary school years. <laughs> fantastic. I can visualise that classroom now. It looks fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so please tell us a little bit more about those school days and those early ambitions and did those ambitions change? They definitely did change over time. So it seems bizarre to me now, but while I was in primary school, I never considered astronomy or space-related things as a possible career path. I honestly thought the only thing you could do if you were interested in space was to be an astronaut. So I really considered it a hobby. I just had it on the side. And whenever someone asked me what my hobbies were, I would say, oh, it's singing, chess and space. And they would say, space? How is space a hobby? It's like, I like reading about it outside of school. So for the longest time, I just thought, oh, it's not a possible career path because I didn't know there were careers outside of being an astronaut. And so when I went to high school, I was very much of the idea that I was going to study medicine because girls like me, my cultural background who were in year levels above me, were studying biology and chemistry to be able to study medicine in university. And I honestly thought that's what I was going to do as well. I thought I was going to become a doctor. And it's not that I was ever forced into that career path. It's just something that I saw for myself. And I really liked science in general, so it just seemed like the thing to do. And then I moved schools and I met this science teacher who ended up being my physics teacher at one stage. And I think she had a lot to do with my shift in understanding of what I could actually pursue down the track. But my interest in space definitely remained. I still had that tendency to make any and every project space-related if I could. And we started learning about special relativity in high school and it just blew my mind. I, I just have to say, like, the fact that space and time were related and intertwined I just thought it was the most interesting thing ever. And then on the side, I was reading about general relativity a little bit. Obviously, I didn't understand the mathematics or anything like that. But the idea that you had the sun in this space-time fabric distorting space and the reason the Earth moves around the sun is because it's following the curvature of space-time. I just thought, wow. And that's where my kind of interest in black holes started because... 
they were the objects that were distorting this space-time so extremely. So I started reading more about these black holes and trying to understand what this space-time was. And I remember there was an elective subject in high school called the Independent Learning Project. And that subject was to answer a research question, kind of like a literature review. And this research question, we had to kind of think of a question and then do a presentation at the end of the semester. So Brendan, I got to ask, what do you think I did my independent learning project on? What do you think my question was? Uh, Did Einstein invent black holes? Ooh, black holes is definitely on the right track. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I will tell you the heading right now. So it was cosmic holes. Black holes, white holes, wormholes. Do they exist? And if so, are they a threat to humanity? Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, I was miles away, but um, what a great topic. I mean, black holes is right on it, I think. <laughs> Very good. So, like, the, I remember I, I loved doing the presentation at the end of semester because what I ended up doing, I knitted a giant square to demonstrate the fabric of space-time in my presentation. In hindsight, I could have just bought some stretchy material, but I really wanted to knit this square to show that space and time was woven together and this is indeed a fabric of space-time. And I remember having a volunteer in my classroom come up and put different heavy objects on this fabric to show this distortion in space-time. And so this continued for a while and again, I didn't really think about doing this as a career until my physics teacher like had to say to me at some point, and it sounds really kind of cliche and it sounds obvious now to kind of think back and think, why did it take for her to say this to me before I actually considered a career in physics? But she pretty much said to me, Shanika, if you are interested in physics, if you love it so much, why don't you just do it? And And what she meant by that was, why don't you do a career in physics? Why don't you pursue this as a career? And I thought to myself, yeah, I could do this. There is potentially something I could do. And I could keep this not as a hobby, but something I really want to do from a day-to-day basis. It's just up until that point, I never, it never crossed my mind as a possible career. So that's when I started to kind of really seriously think about studying astrophysics and physics in university. Well, that's fantastic. And how lovely to have a physics teacher who's also a role model for you as well to get you started on the path. When I was reading up on you to get some questions to talk about with your interview here, I did find out some information. You're quite an accomplished chess player as well. (laughs) Yes, uh, I did play chess in high school at both state and national level. And the second high school I went to, I think we were quite competitive. At one stage, we got third place at nationals, which is a lot of fun. It's competitive. It's also a male-dominated sport. But given that we were in the girls' division, we didn't see that as much. But it's interesting. (laughs) I really did enjoy it. Fantastic, Shanika. So... After your successful school career with an inspiring lady physics teacher, 
you went to Monash University in marvellous Melbourne, Australia, to do your BSc Advanced, where you graduated with honours with majors in physics and astrophysics. And your honours thesis was searches for X-ray pulsations from gravitational wave candidates. And I see that now you're doing your PhD and you're over halfway there and your focus is on gravitational wave astrophysics and population studies. Can you tell us how you were inspired to enrol in a PhD and are you on track and how's it going? Yeah, so I'm over halfway through my PhD. Yes, I still can't believe it. Time has flown by so fast. But yeah, I just passed my second milestone. And so I only have about a year and a bit to go. It was a bit of a journey to get to my PhD through my university, like undergraduate degree. So early on, I was still kind of pursuing both astrophysics, physics and chemistry through my undergraduate. And as I progressed through my degree, I dropped the chemistry part because I realized I like physics and astrophysics. But I was in a constant battle with myself of which one was I going to pick? Was I going to pick astrophysics or physics? Because as I went higher up through the degree, I started learning about quantum mechanics and condensed matter physics. And I just thought, wow, physics is so cool too, not just astrophysics. So it was a bit of a difficult situation for me because I was just so torn between the two fields. And I think in a way, the field was chosen for me by my third year research project that I did. So I did my research project on X-ray pulsations in my third year, which I continued into my honours with Dr. Duncan Galloway. And this project kind of showed me that actually you don't have to pick between astrophysics and physics. In some areas, they do really cross over. So I kind of made peace with that and continued doing this research project. And I found that I really enjoyed this subject much more than coursework. I found that I really enjoyed just looking into understanding these astrophysical objects and especially neutron stars. I really started really liking neutron stars, maybe even more so than black holes, but don't tell the black holes this. <laughs> but it's it was, I just thought of them as they're high energy physics labs in space. That's what they are. They are there are people studying these neutron stars to better understand um, matter at in, in such extreme environments. But at the same time, I was also interested in understanding how these neutron stars came to be and what their general properties are. So this was exciting stuff for me, but I also felt quite comfortable learning about these X-ray pulsations. I was starting to get familiar with the kind of literature behind it. And I almost fell into a place where I was like, maybe I'll pursue this in my PhD. But I remember uh, Duncan telling me, you know what, Shanika, you, you know you're interested in gravitational wave astrophysics. You should probably pursue that. And I think that's the nudge I needed to kind of do a PhD in gravitational wave physics because I did feel like, it would be a bit scary even to do something different between your honours year and your PhD because in a way I was starting from scratch again. But I'm glad that he did give me that nudge because now I'm doing something that I absolutely enjoy. Trying to understand the universe through gravitational wave analysis is just, for me, I'm, I'm, I feel incredibly fortunate 
to be living in this time where gravitational wave astronomy is just, the field is just exploding. So yeah, I feel like I'm on track in my PhD so far and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. It sounds like I can hear the excitement in your voice. Thank you. Now, we know that many PhDs often have great mentors and supervisors, and you've mentioned um, Dr. Galloway. Would you like to talk about some of the people who've supported your career and your research directions? Oh, yes, I would love to, because there have been so many people that have supported me throughout the way, from high school to university, and not just my supervisors. So I have to give a shout out to my supervisors, though. So Dr. Duncan Galloway and Carl Vette from ANU, both of them supervised me in my honours year and they were incredible. I think they created such a supportive environment that I was able to grow through leaps and bounds and they helped me gain a lot of confidence in my presentation skills and so forth during that year. And currently my PhD supervisor is Dr. Eric Thrain and he has been fantastic so far. He is definitely a supervisor that pushes me out of my comfort zone. You can't really progress if you don't take these risks and you don't step out of your comfort zone. And he's really created an environment and a way of thinking for me to even be, you know, motivated to step out of my comfort zone. So I find myself, you know, raising my hand for different opportunities much more now than I ever would have in my undergraduate degree. All of these supervisors have been incredibly supportive and helpful in me gaining confidence over the past few years. In fact, I don't think I would have even agreed to do this podcast if it weren't for their kind of guidance throughout the years. Going back to high school, my physics teacher, as I mentioned, she definitely helped me develop my confidence as well, but also she nurtured my enthusiasm for physics and astrophysics. She showed me opportunities where I could learn more about astrophysics and also take initiative in running events related to astrophysics at school. I remember running an event related to the transit of Venus. She let me take reign over that event and, you know, talk to visitors that came by about the event and show them how to use the solar scope we had and teach them about the transit of Venus. And these little things helped me become more aware of what I really wanted to do. And sometimes you do need that push from people to kind of see the opportunities that are available to you. And I guess the last shout out in a way that I have to say is the administration staff in the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash. They have been amazing. So I really did go through a very rough period in my life during my undergraduate degree to the point where I didn't think I'd have the grades to get into honours. And the staff was so supportive in the sense that they noticed things were not right and they gave me advice and provided me with the resources I needed to either seek help or to get through my degree. And I think without them, I probably wouldn't have gotten into honours and probably wouldn't be pursuing a PhD right now. So the importance of having such a supportive department, as well as my peers throughout the years, I have to say, have been super important to my progress through 
my high school, university, and now through my PhD. So I feel quite fortunate that I've had so many wonderful people supporting me throughout the years. Ah, fantastic. It takes a village. Now, Shanika, our listeners will be aware of gravitational wave astronomy because we've done previous episodes with Osgrav researchers, Professor Matthew Bales, uh, Dr. Fiona Panther, and Cheyenne Chatterjee. But let's do some science now and look into your PhD work itself. Are you doing a research thesis or by publication? And what broad questions are you aiming to answer in your PhD research? Great question. So first of all, I have to say, although I might be a bit biased, those episodes were fantastic. I enjoyed them so much. Of course, it's nothing to do with gravitational wave astronomy, of course. Um, But yes, I'm hoping to write my thesis through a series of publications. I haven't started writing it yet. I still have a year and a bit to go. So I think I'll start writing it towards the end of this year, maybe. And my research is about using gravitational waves to better understand the population of compact objects, in particular, black holes and neutron stars. And so when you have a lot of gravitational wave events, you can start to look at these events as a population and look at the trends in the population. So that's what I do with my work, broadly speaking. And I use tools such as Bayesian inference and hierarchical Bayesian inference to do this. And just to get into a little bit about hierarchical Bayesian inference. So Bayesian inference is a tool that we use to analyze gravitational wave signals and then to be able to determine the parameters of the compact binary that we observed, such as their masses, their spins, their inclinations, and so forth. So the properties of these compact binaries. And hierarchical Bayesian inference is a step up from that in a way of looking at the shape of the distribution rather than the distribution itself. So for example, if my mass distribution looked like a power law distribution, Bayesian inference would be giving me the mass distribution, but hierarchical Bayesian inference would be giving me the shape of the distribution. And so the parameters that this looks for would be something like the slope of this power law. So what's the index of this power law? So a lot of my population inference work on population studies uses this hierarchical Bayesian inference technique. And what's great about this is as we get more and more events, we can get a better understanding of what the population looks like. And this enables us to better understand the processes behind how these compact binaries came to be, as well as how the stellar systems that were there before they were born, given that, you know, compact objects are the corpses of these stars, we can better understand both stellar evolution processes and formation mechanisms by looking at these populations. That's sensational. And we can look forward to a lot more events being detected. So thank you, Shanika. Now, We always ask, you've already been a bit technical here for my head, but we always ask a couple of technical questions for listeners who like to put their propeller hats on when they listen to an episode. So could you talk us through some details of a particular part of your research that you're working on that's driving you crazy or astonishingly exciting or both? Yes. I I, Yeah, I agree. I did get a bit technical there, but I'll try and kind of mix it up here. So 
there are a lot of things I'm working on right now that I'd love to talk about, but some of the stuff I'm working on right now, I can't actually talk about because they're top secret LIGO business related to the second half of the third observing run known as O3B. But I can tell you some of the exciting stuff from O3A, which was the first half of the third observing run of LIGO and Virgo. So I was part of the paper writing team for this particular paper, looking at the population properties of binary black holes. And so what we do is, so again, going back to that hierarchical inference idea where we're looking for the shape of these distributions, we're looking for the overall trends in these populations. And so what we do is that we create models to compare our observations against to see which models fit best. But these models are motivated by astrophysics. So I might go into a bit of a bit more detail here of an example of the astrophysics. So let's consider something called pair instability. So this is a process that occurs in very massive stars, um, greater than, say, 130 solar masses. And these stars are so massive that they are able to produce positron-electron pairs. And as these positron-electron pairs are reproduced, the pressure in the core of these massive stars decreases. And so this core starts collapsing. And it collapses so much that it becomes very, very hot. It starts fusing heavier elements and ignites. And this energy is so immense that the star completely blows up, (laughs) right? So these massive stars blow up and they leave behind no remnant. So we don't get a black hole in this situation. So this is an interesting feature to look at when we're looking at populations of binary black holes, because what this means is at some point, these stars are no longer collapsing down to form black holes. So what we would expect to see in a mass distribution, for example, is a cutoff at high masses. So this is a feature that we can add into our models and see if our observations fit and are well described with this feature in our model. And that's how we can probe these astrophysics theories using our models and comparing it to these observations. That's fantastic. You must have so much fun working through that. And to think you can get all of that information from that data is mind-boggling. Now, to follow up on that, I just had a look at one of your papers on the archive service where you discuss the difficulty of seeing through all the noise in data to separate marginal events and events with terrestrial sources so that you can be more certain that the data you extract can be of galactic or extragalactic origins. Now, my language and understanding is probably quite imprecise here, but Can you talk us through gravitational wave catalogues, what these catalogues are and how gravitational wave researchers like yourself use them? Indeed, I can. So these catalogues are essentially our set of gravitational wave events that we've detected. And so far we have a catalogue of 50 events following O3A, the first half of the third observing run of LIGO and Virgo. And so in this work, I looked at how we can account for contamination in our population. So as we get more and more events and as our catalogues grow, we're more likely to have more marginal events included. And this can be a problem. And so I'm going to try and outline this 
as best I can. So every gravitational wave event that we detect has some probability associated with it regarding how probable it is that it's astrophysical in origin. We call this P astro. Yep. So a P astro value of one would mean it's 100% real. It's 100% astrophysical origin. And a P astro of zero would mean that it's not a real signal. And every event that we get has some number between zero and one. And so if you can imagine studying a population where you have, say, 10 binary black holes with a P astro value close to one, and another 10 binary black holes with a P astro value around 0.5. So this would mean these events are ambiguous or marginal because they have a 50-50% chance of being real or not. So if you have 10 of each, which set of events do you think better represents our population? Um, That's set above 0.5. Indeed. So this is a thing that we have to kind of consider when we're doing our population analyses, because these events that are marginal, they should have less weight when trying to determine what the true population looks like. So the method we developed was to be able to weight each of these events by their respective significance in our population analyses, which would mean that our population inference would be mostly supported by the events that are more likely to be astrophysical in origin. And this is something that's important to do because one, we don't want our population to be impacted by the contamination too much. And two, it's important to do this rather than just discarding all the events below, say, a P astro of 0.9, because you're losing information if you do that. So this is a way of accounting for the contamination as well as properly weighting our populations by their respective significance to better do our population analyses to better understand the true population of these binary black holes. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Shanika. Now, our listeners have heard about the design of LIGO and Virgo, and you've just mentioned we've got 50 gravitational wave confirmed candidates. And listeners have also heard how machine learning will be used in the 04 observing run to hopefully pinpoint those origins and identify sources of transients at a whole variety of wavelengths. Are you looking forward to the next LIGO observing run? Uh, Yes, (laughs) most certainly, (laughs) because I work on populations, trying to understand... um, how these systems came to be and how they formed. And so the more events I have, the better the population analyses would be and the better our understanding of these processes. So I'm super excited for 04. I'm particularly excited for more binary neutron stars because currently we only have two and it's pretty hard to do population studies with just two binary neutron stars. So I think I'm mainly looking forward to seeing more binary neutron stars in 04. Fantastic. Now, speaking of neutron stars, I had a look at another one of your papers on the archive servers, and that looks at the population of double neutron stars using both radio and gravitational wave observations. And you describe a process of combining these observations by considering the merger times of these double neutron stars. Can you tell us some more about that? 
For sure. So as I said, we only have two binary neutron stars to work with with gravitational waves. So our population studies are limited in that regard. But there are observations of these double neutron stars in other ways, such as radio astronomy. So we have a bunch of double neutron stars to work with there. And so in this work, we aim to be able to combine both sets of information to better understand the population of double neutron stars. But it is a bit tricky because there are a bunch of selection biases that you have to deal with when you consider these populations because they're not the same. And what you observe in gravitational waves and what you observe in radio is different for different reasons, whether they are actually visible for a long periods of time, whether they're ever going to merge is another question. So we had to think about what links these two populations. And if you think about it, what radio astronomy is showing us is the midlife of these neutron stars, the lives of these neutron stars. Whereas gravitational waves are showing us when they die at their final moments. So what links the two is the birth distribution of double neutron stars. They must both come from the distribution of neutron stars as they're born. So we worked on a method to be able to extract this birth distribution and to better understand the mass distribution of these double neutron stars. And so the merging timescales was incorporated into this analysis to be able to look back in time to get this birth distribution. And one of the other things that we looked at in this analysis was to better understand the event GW190425, which was this massive binary neutron star that we detected. And it seemed to be unusual in the sense that it wasn't very consistent with the galactic population of double neutron stars. It seemed to be very massive. And so in our analysis, we kind of considered, okay, why don't we see these heavy double neutron stars in our radio observations? Is there a reason for that? And so in this study, we ran with the hypothesis that these heavy double neutron stars are not visible in radio purely because they're fast merging. So if they're fast merging, they don't exist long enough for us to observe in radio. And so we'll see them in gravitational waves. So we incorporated this information as well and considered a slow versus fast merging channel to understand this lack of heavy double neutron stars in radio. And what we actually found is that there isn't a lot of support for this fast merging hypothesis. And it seems like that GW190425 is not really an outlier when you consider the population and when you do a full population inference study. So that was actually kind of an interesting result because there was the idea that maybe this event is a very huge outlier, but we find in our study that actually it's not really that much of an outlier. And this idea is actually consistent with some of the population synthesis studies that have come out looking at how heavy binary neutron stars can be formed just within our normal galactic population. And it turns out that maybe these systems are just rare. So this was quite an exciting paper for me. Uh, It was recently published in Astrophysical Letters and It's definitely a lot different to my first research paper, which was very heavily in statistics. And this one was more leaning towards astronomy and astrophysics. And I really enjoyed it because 
I love neutron stars and I like where my PhD is heading right now. <laughs> That's astonishing. Uh, right now, my head is spinning uh, a bit like a magnetar. Thanks, Janik. <laughs> <Yeah, again. laughs> um, so good luck with the rest of that work. It's amazing. What a great trajectory you're on with that team there at Monash Astrophysics and it might be good to mention here how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your studies and your research and your group research. Oh, yes. I guess I've been quite fortunate in my research and the field that I work in because uh, even though we went into lockdown and we were forced to work from home, this work can be done on a computer at home. So this didn't impact me as much as I think other people have been impacted, such as people who require resources in labs and so forth. But it was quite, I guess, draining because there was a lack of um, interaction with your colleagues and with your supervisors face-to-face. I mean, Zoom is great and all, but you don't quite get the interaction and the coffee breaks that you need to kind of get you through the day sometimes. And in that period, it, it, it was a little bit difficult, but again, I've been quite fortunate in the field that I'm in that it hasn't disrupted my PhD as much. I guess the only kind of downside to this is that I haven't had an opportunity to travel yet during my PhD, which is a bit of a downer, but it's okay because um, I've been making up for it by attending conferences virtually. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And yeah, That outreach that you do is fantastic. I should mention two nights ago, I watched you and Isabel do an online seminar about gravitational wave astronomy. It was just astonishing. Could you tell us a bit? Oh, and that reminds me, it sounds like you were doing outreach in primary school, creating posters that almost destroyed the classroom. (laughs) Um, This... um, This OSGRAV outreach team you're in, can you tell us about outreach and why it's so important to you? Oh, yes. I I mean, I love doing outreach. So hopefully I don't get carried away here. So I've done a few outreach activities as part of OSGRAV and Monash. I think I can narrow it down to two main reasons why I like doing outreach and why I'm so passionate about it. The first and I think a lot of science communicators and other outreachers kind of share this, is to inspire the next generation of scientists. So I mentioned before that I really didn't think about astrophysics as a career because I just didn't know. (laughs) And it wasn't really something that I saw in my peers or anybody I interacted with. So I feel like being able to share my story with kids from all ages, ranging from primary school to high school is super important just so they can see that people like them or people that used to be like them are actually doing things that are outside of maybe what they think is the status quo or just just the fact that we need to be kind of visible to these students to be able to help them see that there are opportunities that are very different out there. And so that's one aspect which I think is very important just to be essentially a role model in a way. The second reason why I do it is it's just fun. (laughs) 
I enjoy it so much. And I think there's a bit of a selfish aspect to it because by doing outreach, it really helps you step outside of a little bubble that you find yourself in sometimes when you're doing research. So on a day-to-day basis, my research looks like coding, writing things up, coding, deriving things, having a cup of tea, writing things, coding, and so forth. But by doing outreach, you take a step back and start to look at what you're doing in the big picture kind of scenario because you interact with these students and they they just show so much enthusiasm and joy when you tell them about your research and what you're working on. And it, it really does force you to think, hang on, I am studying these exotic objects that are in space from the comfort of my computer. That is what I'm doing. I'm learning about these black holes and neutron stars just from my computer. And doing outreach reminds me of why I'm doing this in the first place and why I fell in love with this field in the first place. So yeah, those are the two main reasons why I do outreach. One, to inspire future scientists, but two, also for selfish reasons because it's fun and I have to say one of my most challenging and interesting outreach experiences to date was when my mum who's a childcare worker she asked me on behalf of one of her colleagues whether I could come into the childcare centre and talk to children under five about astronomy oh wow that was a day (laughs) so what I decided to do was create a bunch of planets um, with some styrofoam balls and paper mache and painting them. And I took them in and essentially got the kids to sit around in a circle and I passed these planets around the room. And I was astonished at just how many things these little kids knew about the planets and knew what they looked like. So I would ask, okay, what do you think the name of this planet is? And a lot of kids knew. And it just reminded me of like the enthusiasm that I had for the planets and the solar system when I was little. And I had so much fun that day. And the next part of the activity was to create these little headbands for them. Um, They would colour in these little planets, cut them out and then stick them on some headbands and wear them. And the feedback I got from that day was these kids were uh, like talking to their parents about the planets and talking about how cool they were and I just thought yes this is what I enjoy doing just being able to share my enthusiasm both with high schoolers but I never thought at such a young age that I would be able to kind of convey that enthusiasm and that interest in science and astronomy to these really really young children it was the challenge but it was a lot of fun and it reminds me every day of like why I do what I do and why I enjoy it so much. And I'm hoping that I can fit in some more outreach stuff this year and interact with people a bit more this year because unfortunately last year it was mainly online. But hopefully we can interact with high school students and younger students a bit more this year and share what we do from on a day-to-day basis. And hopefully I can talk more about gravitational waves and black holes. <laughs> Ah, that is sensational. The clarity of the way you explain astrophysics and the enthusiasm that comes through in your voice. 
there's no doubt you'll be launching careers for young people for a long time to come. Now, your PhD is just there on the horizon and it's well within reach. And now, this might be a terrible question to ask at this stage, Shanika, but have you had the opportunity to consider what may be next in your astrophysics career? <laughs> so I would say this is not a terrible question at all, Brendan. I think I'm pretty glad you asked because I'm asking myself this question right now. Uh, I'm at a stage at my PhD where I feel like I'm progressing well and I'm getting publications out and I'm doing research and it's a lot of fun. But at times you really do need to sit down and think about what the next chapter is going to hold. And at this stage, I have to say I'm a little bit on the fence. I'm not sure what I'm going to do exactly. Rather, I just think I'm going to go with the flow. I think what I'm going to do is that I'm going to continue doing astrophysics as long as I enjoy it. And at the moment, yes, I'm considering academia and I'm considering applying for jobs and I do need to think about <laughs> applying for jobs at the end of this year. So what's next is, yeah, applying for these jobs and considering what I want to do next. It's just a bit of a question for me at this stage rather than a certainty. And so I'm really, yeah, I've decided that I'm going to go with the flow and see how it goes. And I'm excited because I, I really enjoy what I'm doing and I really do hope that I can get to keep doing this for years to come. Indeed, and I'm sure that both I and a lot of our listeners will be watching your career in particular with great interest. Now, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, in representations of diversity in science denialism or career paths, as you just mentioned, or your own passion for research or just that bigger human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours, Shanika. Wow. <laughs> so that is a, a very uh, intense question. I, I, can, I, I could go on about this for hours probably, but we don't have hours. We probably have minutes. So I guess there are two things that I think are very important to kind of think about both in academia and just in general, both, I guess, the issue of diversity and inclusion as well as mental health. So the first one, I guess, going through university and high school, actually starting from high school, I never felt like physics wasn't for me. I know that a lot of other people have experienced very different environments. I think one of the advantages I had was I went to an all-girls school for both of my high schools. And the second high school I went to, in my year, there were 75 girls taking physics, wow. which is an impressive number. And I didn't realize it was an impressive number at that point at all. It just felt normal. And so I was kind of, in a way, blind to the kind of facts out there. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't see it. And then I went to university and then you start seeing the kind of a drop in the number of women that are taking up physics and astronomy. Astrophysics tends to be better in numbers. Uh, physics, not as much. I do remember by third year, 
in our quantum physics class, there were about 90 students in the classroom and only three women. Yep. So by that stage, it, it is kind of a bit odd and you do feel like what's going on here. I do remember there was some times where I did feel a bit alienated in the classroom because it felt like the uh, lecturer or educator was catering to majority of the classroom, which were male students, which makes sense. But at the same time, it, it does feel a bit weird the way things were described or the humour that was in the classroom wasn't really tailored to us. So that was a bit unfortunate. But on the flip side, I was fortunate enough to have friends who understood what women go through in these fields. I felt comfortable talking to them if I ever felt uncomfortable, if I had an issue. And over the years, thanks to them, as well as the supervision and mentors I've had, I find myself more confident in calling things out if I see it. Yep. And I think one of the most important things to do now is to be able to have allies that are not women who understand what we go through. And I know I have a number of amazing colleagues who actually from time to time check in with me and go, hey, uh, is that thing I said appropriate? Uh, can it be interpreted in a different way? They're always trying to better themselves. They're trying to improve the way that either, either the way they communicate science or any kind of unconscious bias that they might have. They're trying to check themselves every time. And I feel the more we can have an open conversation with everybody about what women go through in the field, I think the better it will be for everyone. And linking to that, I think we all need to be a bit more open about mental health as well. I think a lot of us talk about, you know, our successes a lot and we talk about all the positives because I guess that's what we want to share. But I found myself talking more and more about the struggles that I go through as well. And I think I'm quite an open person in both with my peers as well as my supervisor and so forth about what I'm going through, whether I'm struggling or not. And having this conversation going, I think is extremely important, not just for everybody else to understand, but for yourself, because it can be difficult to reach out for help and reach out to people to discuss, you know, the, the things that are, you're going through that's not so great, not so positive. But the more we normalize this, the better it will be for everyone, I think. And it's, I think it's going to be a long journey, but if I can have any like hope <laughs> in this is that the people that I'm surrounded by seem like people who really are wanting change. The, the astrophysics group at Monash is fantastic. The working environment so far for me has been an incredibly positive environment and being part of Osgrav is that group has been so positive as well. And so I feel quite fortunate that I haven't experienced a lot of kind of sexism or discrimination in that regard. Yep. And they've also been incredibly supportive about mental health issues. So in terms of, I guess, going forward with all this and all the issues that we face in science, being more open, I think, and being more honest is an important part. It is difficult, but I hope that I can help others kind of be more open about it as well. And 
feel confident and comfortable talking to someone, not just in regards to what the issues they're going through, but also feel comfortable talking about whether they are doing something that's not quite right and they can improve on. So on both sides, we need to kind of work towards uh, working together to get through this because it is a big issue. And I think especially in academia, but as long as we, um, you know, check ourselves and help others see how to work through this, I think we can head in a good trajectory because if anybody that I'm surrounded by is to be considered, they are willing to change and they're willing to learn, which is one of the best things that you can get from a colleague is the fact that they're not afraid to be, I guess, called out on something or not afraid to be corrected on something. And that's the kind of environment that I would continue to love to work in. Wow, that's a really optimistic journey of discovery. It sounds fantastic and some very good advice in there as well. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Oh, great question. I guess in the near future, I hope people will keep an eye out for the results coming out of LIGO and Virgo for the second half of the third observing run. I'm really excited about that. And it should be a lot of fun to work on. We'll see. But what I'm keeping an eye on is actually population synthesis studies. So I think I mentioned this briefly earlier. Population synthesis is kind of the flip side of what I currently work on. It's kind of two sides of the same coin when you consider population inference and population synthesis. What I do is create models and compare them against observations. Um, What population synthesis does, from my understanding at least, is that they simulate a population based on some some assumptions about the properties of the stars and evolve them through time and then compare whatever population they get out as a result with our observations. And I'm hoping to better incorporate these kind of population synthesis studies in my own studies because I think they can be incredibly informative and just helpful in understanding both sides of this coin and I'd like to be a bit more involved in that as well. So I'm very much keeping an eye on this. I know there are a bunch of researchers that I know that are working on this stuff, both at Monash and international people who are looking at populations of neutron star black hole systems, which is super cool when you have a neutron star and a black hole in a binary. So yeah, that that is definitely what I'm keeping an eye on. And I hope to be working on this a bit more down the track watch this space. I've been sitting here, this huge smile on my face, Shanika. Thank you so much. Shanika Gala-Udike. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. And thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule and your study and your research. Congratulations and good luck with nailing that doctorate. And thanks, Shanika. And thank you, Brendan, for this opportunity. It has been So much fun. (laughs) I can't thank you enough. Bye now. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks for Ian's May Sky Guide.
Radio Wave.